Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Hello, junkies. How the heck are you doing? Hey, right after this episode, I mean right after this episode, we have a promo for the podcast novel Underwood and Flinch Season 3 by Mike Bennett. Mike is an old school podcast novelist. He's been around for a long time. He's won multiple Parsec Awards. That is the award given to speculative fiction podcasts. So stay tuned after the episode to check that out. And another note. Are you joining us for the Sigler in Place live streams every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern? In this world full of negativity, a real girl and I try to give you some positivity. She in the form of wonderful, useful information. I usually in the form of seventh grade level toilet humor. You can join us and a whole bunch of other junkies in the chat room every Wednesday. Again, that's 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler, YouTube.com slash Scott Sigler, and Twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler. As for the Stone Wolves, I think we're still sort of setting the table for what will be a most epic feast of wonderful storytelling. So let me get you caught up in the story so far, and then... We're all going to go try and untangle a pair of earbuds. Previously on The Gangster, Aya Omiata is the Olrin's newest crew member. Trained since childhood to be a lethal tactical chess master, she's fled her home in the League of Planets and has been on the run ever since, right up until she joined Killian's crew but she's only a member of that team on an interim basis. Can she make the cut? Can she make the Olaren her home? Find out next on The Stone Wolves, episode number three. Chapter 3. Hopscotch. Aya Omiata. Watched the barely recovered and very befuddled near a Zavi desert kid limp down Main Street, away from her and her crewmates. Technically, she supposed, they should have killed him. That's what her training told her. But she didn't want to kill anyone. Not ever. Not again. The native turned around, flipped Aya, Beans, and Zan's Schmeck the bird, then bellowed something that sounded a bit like, die in a fire. Since he'd lost a few teeth in the tussle, Aya couldn't be certain. He turned the corner and was gone. Past midnight, in Riss, out on the empty streets. Not a good place to be. She would have felt better if Skipper had been there, both for herself and for him. Doesn't make sense, she said. Why wouldn't he want us to come, too? Does he go off on his own a lot? Beside her... The gears inside Beans' big schmeck creaked as it shifted from one mismatched foot to the other. The forefingers on its left hand fidgeted, wiggled up and down as if playing an invisible piano. The clanky homemade schmeck wasn't antsy, of course, but the pilot inside most certainly was. 
I have found it hard to believe that Beans, by far the most attention-deficit sentient she'd ever worked with, could have ever completed building this contraption by himself. It might look like a walking fever dream, but the thing could operate on land, underwater, or in the vacuum of the void. And while it wasn't built specifically for combat, Ian knew it could more than hold its own in a scrap. All must spin when the boulder rolls down the hill, yes, 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 Bean said. His voice sounded tinny and robotic, processed through the speaker film fused under the schmack's oil-stained torso. Beans, I said, what does that even mean? The schmack shrugged. The rucksack on its shoulders, large enough to stuff a small key inside, shifted, making the contents clang like pots and pans. Aya didn't know what Beans had in there. Weapons and ammo, she assumed, in case things went bad. It is a Scolorno expression, Zanz Schmeck said. Or, rather, a poor translation of a Scolorno saying. It means something from Skipper's past is catching up with him. Aya looked from Beans's walking Schmeck to Zan's flying one. I had yet to see the real Zan, only this drone-like Schmeck and the thin, bipedal walking one she used inside the Oleron. Aya didn't even know Zan's species. Skipper doesn't talk to me about his past, Aya said. Not yet, anyhow. All yous know something I don't? A stupid question. Of course they knew more than her. Beans had been aboard the Oleron for something like four or five standards. And Zan? Two decades, at least. Nah, nah, nope, Beans said. Just hunches. You're not the only one with secrets, Starling. Starling. She had two unfired rounds loaded in tough luck, and by now, the autoloader had repacked her first shot. She wondered if the rubber balls might find a hole in the schmeck, bounce around inside until they hit little beans where he hid in the machine's torso. I told you not to call me that, Aya said. The schmeck shifted again, fingers twitching. Then why did you tell me Starling as a nickname? Humans make no sense. The word nickname seemed to have a different meaning to Sklorno, something else Aya still didn't understand about the species. I didn't tell you it was a nickname, you little creep. I mumbled it in a drunken delirium while I thought I was alone. I was holding your hair, Bean said, to protect it from being coated with your regurgitation. One thing she liked about the Oleron crew was that they drank. Drank hard. Beans and the skipper did, at least, and Aya had suspicions that Zan knocked back intoxicants from time to time. Of course, drinking didn't always end well. After Aya's first week as part of the crew, Skipper had thrown a party. Aya had over-imbibed to the point of throwing up. Beans had been kind enough to help her deal with the fallout. Confessions and revelations are a common side effect of sharing junky gin, the holiest of spirits. Yes, 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 Bean said. Blessed be his benevolent milkiness preferred beverage. Again with the evangelizing? Don't go there, Aya said. But his milkiness hails from the Tower Republic. So does your father. You are practically family. Aya jabbed an index finger toward the schmeck, then to her own face. Do I look milky white to you, Beans? Freaks don't have family. The Schmeck's mismatched shoulders slumped. 
That will be enough, both of you. Zan's drone shot between them and hovered there, teddy bear face seeming to stare in silent accusation. The streets of Rith are no place to be having a spat like this. Aya had been on the Oleron for only a few weeks, but she knew that Zan often did this sort of thing when there was static among the crew. Skipper called the shots, but Zan kept the peace. I'm not wrong, Aya said. About the boss heading out on his own, I mean. You don't go anywhere on this planet without friends. Or, at the very least, without packing heat. He doesn't even carry a gun. The captain can take care of himself, Zan Schmeck said. Maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't. Killian had taken Aya in when no one else would have. No one legit, anyway. Well, no one semi-legit, as Killian and his crew certainly didn't object to breaking a few laws here and there. But they weren't assassins. Most sentients who wanted to hire Aya, who were willing to give her safety, were exactly that. Gears whined as one of Beans's metal hands raised to where the machine's chin might be. Its index finger tapped against the surface there, ting, ting, ting. Aya resisted an urge to roll her eyes. Of course, this was a completely unnecessary gesture, like most of the body language movements Beans' Schmeck made. Beans loved to anthropomorphize his metal puppet. Zan, you've known Skipper the longest, Beans said. Has he acted like this before? Zan's underbelly limbs swayed back and forth a few times, as if the machine was mulling it over. Yes, she said. He has gone off on his own a few times. Even through the speaker film, Aya sensed there was much more to this story. And when he has, nothing good has come of it, Aya said. Am I right? Zan Schmeck didn't answer, which was an answer in itself. Great, Aya said. That's just great. So what do we do now? We go back to the Oleron, Zan said. And we wait. Beans cocked a thumb toward the jangling rucksack hanging on his back. Do either of you want to play Giving Day with me? Humans love Giving Day, yes, yes, yes. I made friends last time we were here. Got some presents for some good girls and boys over in the Jasava slum. Aya leaned to the side so she could see more of the lumpy rucksack hanging from the schmeck's back. You brought presents on a run? Mostly moisture-collecting gear, Bean said. And some medicines and data slates preloaded with educational games and software. So the crew had been to Wilson 4 before. Maybe many times. Zan and Killian tried to make Aya feel like part of the crew. With all the past history, it seemed like she would always be an outsider. We haven't been paid in weeks, Aya said. And you spend your money on toys? I didn't buy them, Starling. No, 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 I built them. Children on this planet suffer from high levels of illiteracy. If they beat the odds and grow up, they'll probably be desperate hanvos, like that veil head we clobbered tonight. It ain't right. No, no, nope. Zan's voice whispered from her drone. Nope. Every sentient deserves the opportunity to rise up, Beans said. Everyone deserves the chance to become more than what their society expects them to be. I have thought about the unlikely pilot inside the eight-foot-tall Schmeck. Just like you, she said. 
the big Schmeck's shoulders rolled back, and the metal chest puffed out theatrically. You bet your ball bearings, Bean said. They can't keep me down. Zan's wings buzzed faster. Let us get this charity work finished, she said. Then we will return to the Oleron. Beans, you are not so bad for a male. The Schmeck pounded a mismatched fist into a mismatched palm. Metal rang. Smash the sexist matriarchy, he said. The tall Schmeck turned and clomped eastward, presumably in the direction of the Jisava slum. Zan went high and shot ahead. Aya followed along. She didn't have anything better to do, and on a planet she'd never visited before, she didn't want to be alone. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. It took the automated Skycab nearly an hour to pilot Killian to the coordinates provided by the data cube. He was well past the outskirts of the Riss Township, soaring above a dark ocean of sand his mind puzzling over the woman who awaited him. He'd heard she had died in an operation on Inath. The bomb timer had apparently gone off a full three minutes earlier than expected, hacked by Vermada turncoats. She, or what little had been left of her anyway, had supposedly been in the ground for three years. He'd visited her grave on Earth. There, he'd said a final prayer to a god he didn't believe in anymore he'd put a bullet on the gravestone for old time's sake. A relic left by a relic. The desert of Naraza rushed by below. Killian's eyes absently noted the tiny spots of glowing orange and yellow, the campfires of the Zagat, local nomads who trekked the desert to locate ancient trees buried by the shifting sands. 
The sand preserved the trees, imbued them with a kind of silica, then made the wood highly desired for furniture. One large log could set up a nomadic family for a year or more. The trees hailed from a time when this continent had apparently been lively and lush, a time the Zagat called Anasana, the time long before the heat. The sky cab banked to the north. Killian could barely make out his likely destination, a needle-like stone spire at least a thousand meters high. It was the tallest and widest among a small forest of these strange spires, perhaps twenty in all. They towered over the desert, improbable things blasted smooth by millennia of whipping wind and sand. Atop the spire, Killian saw the outline of a small spacecraft. The ship appeared to be a two- or three-person passenger compartment bolted onto a sleek, streamlined interstellar punch drive. The thing was absurd, highly customized, and highly dangerous. To operate safely, Punch-enabled spacecraft needed to be several times larger than that ship. No one in their right mind would build something like that, and no one in their right mind would pilot it. It took the concept of a hot rod to its absolute limit. Well, not the absolute limit. The absolute limit was his own ship, the Oleron. The ship atop the spire was illuminated by the flickering amber light of a nearby campfire. A bipedal figure stood by, wearing a long, black jacket, face hidden by the jacket's fur-lined hood, obviously waiting for Killian. He felt an unfamiliar sensation, something low and quivering in his belly. Was it fear? No. It was trepidation. Huh. When was the last time he felt anything like that? The cab descended and landed. Killian paid it what it asked, not bothering to wonder if he had enough money left for the trip back to the Oleron. The cab soared up and up, banked south, and became little more than another light in the glittering sky. The hooded figure motioned to the campfire, then sat cross-legged before it. In that brief bit of movement, Killian spotted the bulge of a weapon inside the jacket, at the figure's hip, Nick and TH-61 with a custom sight and the dull glint of a needle on the toe cap of one of the figure's combat boots, likely coated with grendelin poison, numbs a cut so fast the victim feels no pain when his heart stops. And now, the subtlest of shimmers in the fabric of the jacket itself, a jacket woven from genetically modified spider bear silk, fabric so flexible and strong it could stop a 50 caliber bullet. His eyes spotted more gear, but his brain no longer cared to track it. What was the point? He knew her kit. It was her. It was Fanaka Tolvage. She raised gloved hands to the side of her hood, slid the hood back. He hadn't laid eyes on her in over 30 years. Yet there she was, three decades older, three decades harder, campfire reflecting off the glittering silver ball bearing where her right eye had once been. Her face, familiar yet not, crisscrossed with new mysteries, war trench wrinkles, a scar above her lip, another three on her left cheek, a nose ring that was probably also a bio-ID scrambler. Gray streaked her once jet black hair. Her good eye still blazed bright blue. 
The years hadn't cut into her beauty, for she was still beautiful in the way that only a true warrior goddess can be. She projected a sharp, primal, lethal verve. You look great, Fanaka, Killian said. Fanaka sighed. And you look like shit, killer. Killian had lived three lives aboard the Oleron. One as a crew member under Patrice Jornel, one as the owner and captain with Jornel's crew after she died, and one with Zan, Beans, and now Aya. Between the second and third lives, that was when he'd known Fanaka, during a time of violence. At 18, Killian had enlisted in the purest nation military. It was the right thing to do for a patriotic-minded citizen of the upper class, and service was all but a prerequisite for advancing in nation society. He thought he would put in a standard five-year stint, like his father had, like so many of his friends were doing, and then take over the family business. Put in the time, checkmark the required box, move on to a life of privilege and growth. To Killian's surprise, however, he found he loved the military, and that he had a talent for it. Within six months of enlisting, he was transferred from the Ministry of the Armada to the Ministry of Covert Services. He found himself fast-tracked to be a Null Knife, a member of the covert elite branch of the Purist Nation Armed Forces. His younger-than-normal looks, intelligence, and natural ability to endear himself to almost anyone made him a candidate for a critical, long-term, deep-cover mission. Two years into his service, he was sent to the Planetary Union and given a false identity. Pretending to be another man, Killian enlisted in the Planetary Union Navy, the military of his nation's hated enemy. He wasn't the only embedded agent of the Purist Nation. After three years of service in the Union Navy, other embedded PN agents pulled strings and got Killing assigned to the Union's top-secret ship, the PUV James Keeling. As part of his mission aboard that nightmare vessel, Killian fought a war for the enemy of his people. He saw death on a grand scale. High one. The horrors he saw on the Keeling. Nothing would chase them away. Not all the booze and drugs in the galaxy. He knew that for a fact because he'd tried. On the Keeling, he had changed. Changed forever. He was one of the few people to survive that meat grinder. When his two-year mission aboard the Keeling ended, he returned home to the Purist Nation. He gave his various reports. He was offered commissions, medals. He rejected them all. He'd seen too much. Done too much. He wanted out. Not just out of the service. He wanted out of the purest nation. He'd joined the military, believing in high one and country. When he left, he no longer believed. In anything. He'd wandered the galaxy. He'd taken any job that would keep him fed. He'd wound up with Jornel on the Oleron. There he'd stayed until 2641, until the Kretorakian takeover. The small, six-eyed, bat-like creatures erupted across the galaxy, destroying or capturing ship after ship, descending in ceaseless waves upon world after world. 
There was only one way to stop their inevitable, murderous path. Surrender. Before the system-spanning occupation was completed, the Kretorakians had killed billions of sentients. They conquered the nation, the Union, the League of Planets, both key governments, the Tri-Alliance, the Leaky, the Harat Tribal Accord, and some of the Quith Concordia. Over half of sentient life in the Milky Way galaxy came under Kretorakian control. Those conquered governments continued on as puppets of the Empire. The Bats proved to be adept at war, but inept at governance. Trade routes collapsed. The massive infrastructure damage and countless dead left factories depleted, crops unharvested, sick and wounded untreated. For a short time, the Milky Way suffered those demons of civilization unheard of in centuries, pestilence and mass starvation. The bats learned from their mistakes. Local governments were given more administrative power, but they were by no means sovereign. Gone was any pretense of freedom, of true self-determination. Billions upon billions of sentients chafed at such subjugation. Those peoples longed to reclaim their lands and their cultures. And so, in the shadows of saloons, in the back halls of senate chambers, in the basements of churches, the Zoroastrian Guild was born. Its members, a coalition of resistance fighters from disparate and sometimes warring forces brought together by a common threat, quietly recruited others. They paid particular attention to finding battle-hardened pilots and elite warriors. They found Killian. He'd thought he'd left his patriotism behind. Maybe he had, but he couldn't stand by while the purest nation bent the knee to a foreign government. He couldn't ignore the death and suffering of so many. Killian agreed to help, but he refused to actually fight. He'd seen his share of combat. Too many sentient beings had died at his hands. While he refused to kill for the guild, he contributed to the cause by using the Oleron as she was intended to be used, as a smuggling vessel. He performed simple cargo runs, carried couriers and operatives from one area to another, moved intel between ZG cells. As Killian played the role of behind-the-scenes errand boy, the Bat's merciless rule led to ever-climbing murder and violence rates. The Kretorakian Empire's alien concept of what to allow and what to shut down led to the rise of sprawling, interplanetary crime syndicates. Continued Kretorakian mismanagement and a lack of understanding on how intergalactic economies worked resulted in a galaxy-wide economic depression. Everywhere, people suffered. The wolf within Killian became too ravenous to ignore. He had skills. His time aboard the Keeling had changed him, brought out parts of him he hadn't known existed, turned him into something that could become more animal than man. Snarling, unstoppable, predatory. Fanaka Tolvaj was the one who recruited him into Guild Ops. Somehow, she'd learned of his service as a null knife. In Fanaka, Killian found a kindred spirit, the likes of which he'd never known before. After his time on the Keeling, he could see physical moves seemingly before they happened. Fanaka had a similar knack with intentions and strategy, but on a far grander scale.
She was a chess player who moved sentient pieces around a galaxy-sized board. She quickly became adept at putting Killian in the places where he could do the most damage, yet still get out safely. Killian and Fanaka came to rely on each other's skills. The pair soon became inseparable in the field. Two rare metals merged by Battle's Forge into an alloy crafted for war. They brought on a few more sentients with the same taste for killing, formed a tight crew. They called themselves the Krizatu, the Zoroastrian Guild's most effective special operations unit. Fanaka, who went by the call sign Hopscotch, was the crew's strategist. Lulz, a female hurrah, was their tech specialist and hacker. Demolition's ace Redwire, a human, had impossible gifts of coordination and reaction speed that made him an elite combat pilot. Watokian female Recoil knew more about weapons than damn near anyone. As for Killian, he was the tank. He was the wrecking ball. Through it all, Killian and Fanaka were hopelessly drawn to each other. They'd bonded deeper than anything Killian had ever known, even to this day, even deeper than he'd later bonded with his wife, Constance. Eventually, the endless killing wore Killian down. Death, even on a grand scale, didn't change things. The bats remained in control. He remained faithful to the cause, though, kept on executing the missions Fanaka laid out until a cancerous, inexplicable infighting erupted within the guild. Operatives began killing each other. Unknown elements within the ZG started bombing civilian targets, straying away from the strict mission of hammering the bats. Internecine battles, atrocities committed against innocents who were just trying to live life under the yoke of the Kretorakians, how could the guild be a force for good when a rogue faction was warping it from within? It was troubling and devastating for a true believer like Killian. Nevertheless, Fanaka persevered. Undaunted, her commitment unflagging, she put her chess master intellect to work digging out the cancer by its roots. She had some success, too, uncovering the foundations of the ZG sect that would later be known as the Vermada. That success led to her downfall. It made her a target of Druge Thorn. Before that, Killian hadn't known much about Thorn, only that he was an effective planner, more accountant than covert operative, more pencil pusher than soldier. Before Fanaka realized Thorn was part of that unknown cancer, before anyone knew, his people captured her, spirited her away to Laramie Three. Killian had rescued her. In doing so, he'd crossed lines, crossed all the lines, became something so vile he literally couldn't look himself in the mirror. He'd wanted out. He'd asked Fanaka to come with him to live a life outside of the guild. She'd refused. Killian quit the Zoroastrian guild. He left Fanaka behind. That had put a hole in his heart, a hole that had never fully healed. He hadn't seen her since, until now. Underwood and Flinch 
winner of Parsec Awards in 2012, 2013, and 2014, finally returns to podcast. Season 3 of Underwood and Flinch will run for 14 weekly episodes in a story that stretches from the smoky train tunnels of London's Victorian underground to the present-day metropolis. Rejoin David Flinch as he is drawn into the hunt for a serial killer the press are calling the London Vampire. Which couldn't be a real vampire, could it? Find out. Search for Underwood and Flinch in your podcast app so you can be all set to go when episode one arrives online this Halloween 2021. Thank you. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella, written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram, where he is at Scott Sigler, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.